This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of August 21st, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In our nation's capital, I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. And yet again, the news cycle is just extraordinarily bleak. The unrest continues in Ferguson, Missouri. A photojournalist was beheaded in Syria, and the Ebola virus continues to spread in West Africa. But as always, the gang is here to give you a break from all that with some pure, unadulterated, clean tech geekery. Speaking of taking breaks, taking a break from her summer break is our co-host Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. She's coming to us from the town hall of Scroon Lake, New York. How was vacation before we disrupted it? It was great. Uh, Stephen, the highlight was going to Bolton, Vermont over the weekend uh, to a house party where my husband got together with his old band up the creek and played bluegrass all night, which they hadn't done in 25 years. And it was awesome. I didn't know your husband was in a band. Yes, he's been in several bands. And I know your colleague Jeff Kramer is in a band as well. Have Dave and Jeff gotten together to play some music? At my house, we have. (laughs) Nice. And Jigger Shah is with us from New York City. He's the founder of Sun Edison and uh, an investor in a variety of clean tech companies. And as I understand it, a person who played the tuba when he was growing up. How's it going, Jigger? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. But on the good news side, you know, you those two Ebola folks who, uh, who had Ebola that went to Emory University uh, just checked out. That's right. Some good news. Uh, just a couple of brief items to remind you before we turn to our guest. On September 10th and 11th, uh, Green Tech Media will be hosting our Soft Grid Conference in Menlo Park, California. That is coming right up around the corner, so you can register by going to our events page at greentechmedia.com. We'll also be putting together another live show in New York City soon after on September 22nd at WNYC's Green Room. The Energy Gang will start at 7 p.m., and we're going to post a link to that on our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, so you can sign up for that. Come see us, ask us questions, and chat with us at a reception. All right, let's meet our guest this week. He likely needs no introduction to many of you. It's Amory Lovins, the co-founder and chief scientist at the Rocky Mountain Institute. Amory is a thought leader and practitioner who's helped bring big ideas about renewables and efficient resource use into the mainstream, and he is joining us from his office in Snowmass, Colorado. Amory, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, so I went online to look up some news stories or something to ask you about and uh, what's going on in Snowmass, and seemingly the only thing I could find were stories about bike racing, the upcoming ski season, and photo shoots of local timber. It's a good life over there, huh? Yeah, and we've just uh, reached our 55th passive solar banana crop at 7,100 feet with no furnace and harvested six of those crops. We're pretty full of bananas, and the taxidermically challenged orangutans in the front hall are really stuffed. (laughs) All right, well, before we begin, I want to tell you a quick story, because a couple years after you co-wrote Natural Capitalism with Paul Hawken and Hunter Lovins, I happened upon that book while doing some research in college, and I was looking at pairing my interest in environmental issues with journalism in some way. But at that point, my frame of reference for a lot of environmental issues was all about the negative, you know, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. And when I read Natural Capitalism, for the first time, I was exposed to this idea that doing good by the environment was really good for business. And that had a a huge influence on how I've looked at these issues since then. So it was a really good lesson for me on how a simple idea can really change someone's course. Well, I, I think it's done that for quite a few people. And there are many other good works of that sort. Um, that one's proved pretty durable. It came out in 99. It's in, I think, about 15 languages now and uh, still doing well. And it's a free download at natcap.org. I saw that. Yeah, we'll post a link to that on our podcast page. So Amory isn't here to listen to my stories. He's here for the first part of our show to talk 
about the hard numbers behind renewables and efficiency. In the second part of the show, we will discuss a very important legal decision upholding a grid planning rule in the U.S. Our third story will be about a booming solar market you might not know much about, carports. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. You might remember our little argument a couple weeks ago when we debated a cost-benefit analysis from the Brookings Institution, concluding the cost of wind and solar are higher than they appear. I know many of you remember that because we got a ton of email about it, mostly from people who wanted to push back against my mildly contrarian take. Um, One of those people was Amory Lovins, and he has done the best job of anyone I've seen in breaking down what the Brookings study, and also The Economist magazine, which trumpeted the results without any context, got wrong. So Amory, you were blunt, and you've said in a number of pieces you've written since then that the study used obsolete data and incorrect methods. What data was specifically wrong in that study? <laughs> well, <clears throat> if you go to rmi.org slash frank underscore rebuttal, you'll find out 12 pages of what was wrong in Dr. Frank's analysis. But um, broadly speaking, he assumed that uh, photovoltaics and wind are twice as expensive and half as productive as they are, uh, that combined cycle gas plants have twice the capacity factor they do, that nuclear power costs half as much as it does and has a fifth the operating cost that the Nuclear Energy Institute says it does, that uh, solar has, uh, photovoltaic has scarcely higher capacity factor on peak than year-round, uh, that nuclear plants are twice as fast to build as they are. Well, obviously, if you make assumptions like that, you reach the conclusion he reached, namely to displace coal-fired plants most cost-effectively, you should buy more uh, nuclear and gas power and uh, less wind and solar power. That's the opposite of what the market's actually doing. But if you just reverse nine specific numerical assumptions he made that were way out of date and put in the modern official data, you get the opposite result to what he got. And a lot of this discussion is still pretty academic. So I'm wondering if you can go through some examples of, say, lower than expected integration costs for wind and solar or apply this to real experiences where we're seeing costs uh, certainly not come close to what those projections showed. Well, that's a whole other aspect of Dr. Frank's study. He seems to think that uh, for renewables to do much, you have to have a breakthrough in bulk storage. and We don't know how to do that cheaply. Uh, I actually posted a video recently at rmi.org. If you enter uh, storage myth, M-Y-T-H, in the search engine, you'll find it. that explains why this is not so uh, and what is the modern approach to grid integration, which is more like, as Clay Stranger says, the way a conductor leads a symphony orchestra through a score. No instrument plays all the time, but beautiful music is continually produced uh, because the players are coordinated. That is actually working very well uh, in four European countries not noted for being rich in hydro. uh, Half of last year's electricity consumption, more or less, came from renewables without their adding any bulk storage, and they have excellent reliability. That's uh, Spain with 45% renewables last year. Uh, Scotland, 46, Denmark, at least 47, and Portugal, 58. What Dr. Frank did instead was invent a a new method of supposedly accounting for what he views as the unreliability of uh, photovoltaic and wind power. Nobody in the field would use that. There is a big literature on how to do it properly that takes into account what he says ought to be taken into account, but it reaches very different conclusions. And uh, a pretty good rundown on where to find actual grid integration costs uh, comes out every year in Lawrence Berkeley Labs wind power market report. The new one should be out any week now. Uh, And every year they just update utilities assessments of what grid integration actually costs. It's really interesting to follow because even with quite high, say, wind power penetrations, 40% and up, uh, normally, the integration costs are a few dollars a megawatt hour, and uh, that is actually looking more and more like you need less storage and backup for a high renewables future properly done. Uh, 
than utilities have already installed and paid for to cope with the intermittence, the unforecastable or forced outages uh, of their big thermal plants. So, Emery, I'm curious, this seems to happen over and over again, where institutions of some reputation, in this case Brookings and then Economist afterwards, you know, tends to sort of allow folks like this to say these things that are blatantly wrong. I mean, you even see this in some of the data coming out of the Energy Information Administration out of DOE, or, you know, three or four years ago, it was the IEA. I'm just trying to understand, you know, what responsibility, you know, these institutions have to staying on top of, you know, our sector and what responsibility we have around keeping them honest. Well, Brookings is particularly debate-friendly, and their attitude is that when they have a a, a well-qualified economist on as, as a non-resident fellow and he wants to write a working paper, he can do so. He actually, I believe, did an internal seminar and sent it to some other people, and that was his version of peer review. It obviously wasn't adequate, so I think the result is embarrassing for, for Brookings, but they may not view it that way because they, they think debate is good, and if they throw it out there and it gets rebutted, that's okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think they, they may publish something more on this uh, from a different perspective. The Economist was gracious enough to publish a short letter from me last week, basically saying don't believe everything you read, even in The Economist. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think one has a higher expectation of uh, EIA and IEA, and they are improving their quality. But remember that EIA is under the thumb of various budget uh, committee folks in Congress who have a habit of asking them, for example, to do a subsidy study so narrowly defined that it leaves out most of the subsidies to whatever the sponsor doesn't like, or, or sorry, does does like. So they <clears throat> they will typically conclude that renewables are more highly subsidized than fossil and nuclear. Uh, the opposite is true. And they have now, to their credit, started listing the subsidies that they didn't include because they weren't asked to. And I hope soon they'll perhaps be brave enough to quantify what they didn't include. But that might, of course, get them in trouble with the people who hold their purse strings. Emery, um, I've worked for a long time in energy storage. So, of course, I, I wince when everybody says that storage isn't necessary, although that's not actually what I ever say. I, I always say if it's strategically placed on the transmission, distribution, or end use side, it can really maximize the efficiency of all the resources on the system and provide flex- flexible capacity. Um, but but storage in combination with demand response, energy efficiency, a smarter grid structure strikes me that if there was some way, and I think this has been the nut they've been trying to crack, for the utilities to be able to um, really manage that, to take ownership of it, to get rate recovery for it and have it become a value to them, then perhaps they would stop being so fearful of what, you know, what is now considered disruptive. Well, there, I, I didn't actually say, say storage was unnecessary as a flat statement. I think it's, it's often unnecessary, bulk storage in particular. And, and I, I think a, a useful way to think about it is a supply curve of different ways to make the grid flexible. You'd want to buy the cheapest options first, like demand response, as you rightly mentioned, uh, integrating with variable renewables of other kinds or in other places, integrating with dispatchable renewables, which is everything except wind and photovoltaics, and integrating with uh, distributed storage that you may well want to buy anyway, uh, notably high storage air conditioning and smart electric vehicles. Now, after that, uh, bulk storage and fossil fuel backup are kind of up at the end of the supply curve. They're the costliest ways to add grid flexibility, so you'd expect to buy them last, not first. In the new RMI video I mentioned on the storage myth, uh, <clears throat> I offered an aggressive but instructive simple hourly simulation for ERCOT, the isolated Texas grid, showing that Actually, you you could run it all on renewables with no bulk storage very reliably and with 5% spill. You you obviously want to model this sort of thing with and and execute it with greater sophistication uh, as, say, NREL did in the REFS model. We used the same model in the uh, 
scenarios in reinventing fire. Uh, and, and that gets you to 80 or 90 percent renewables, probably more if you want, with very little storage, uh, and it may or may not be bulk. The, the discussion of grid integration costs is very asymmetrical because, as NREL and others have pointed out, there are integration costs to adding anything to the grid, and those for big thermal plants are typically ignored or simply socialized as a system cost, but they're real. Uh, 15% reserve margin, for example, including spinning reserve, is a real cost of having a big thermal plants that can fail suddenly, and then you lose a billion watts in milliseconds. You may lose it for weeks or months. About half the time, you lose it without warning. And those big plants are down about 10 or 12% of the time. It's not like they're some mythical 24-7 thing that's always there, because it's not. That's why we have a grid to back up failed plants with working plants. But in the same way that the grid does that and manages the intermittence of big thermal plants, it can also manage the highly forecastable variations in solar and wind power. So I don't think any of us would dispute the fact that renewables today can be integrated into the grid in large penetrations cost competitively and that there are just some engineering issues and some market design issues that need to be dealt with depending on the grid. But let me get on let me get into the academic side here which I think can be somewhat confusing. And this is what I tried to get at in our debate last time looking at the academic assumptions. Uh, th- there are a lot of ways to look at the true cost of a particular technology. And so EROI, for example, energy return on energy invested, is a major one, which factors in all the energy inputs to a technology. And although there is plenty of conflicting research on how to calculate EROI, um, they can often make, say, solar look less attractive than just on an LCOE basis. Um, And of course, they make extreme fossil fuels like tar sands look even worse than they do today. So some EROI analysis puts solar at like a six, and that means you get six units of energy for every one invested, whereas hydro might be at 40. Interestingly, nuclear analysis was only at five in the analysis that I looked at. Um, But then there are others that put solar in the double digits and nuclear as high as 60. My point is this. um, How do you grapple with all this conflicting analysis? There's so much data out there to support a lot of different conclusions. There it does depend on how deep you want to go with the various assumptions. And you've worked on this over the decades. How do you reconcile those conflicts on an academic level in an objective way? Well, that's why we have a scientific literature where people can argue uh, based on facts, numbers, empirical evidence. Uh, The the blogosphere uh, can add a lot of confusion to that. People can cherry pick data or, or just wave their hands and not use data. But um, I'd, I actually don't find EROI all that useful. I helped develop the generally accepted accounting rules for net energy accounting back in the 70s. You have to be very careful about methodology, like where you draw your system boundary. There are accepted rules for doing this. They are often ignored. Uh, and you can get pretty much any answer you want. It turns out, for example, for photovoltaics, a well-done analysis will typically find energy paybacks on the order of half a year to a year or two, but most of the energy input is not for the silicon because that's so thin now and made with increasing efficiency. Rather, most of the input is for the glass and aluminum that go around the silicon to form the module and can readily be recycled afterwards. If you have energy markets in reasonable equilibrium, the economic analysis will give you the same answer as EROI uh, and uh, a lot simpler. So I I don't think the second metric dealing with net energy is nearly as useful as you might suppose. It was useful for a while after the, the two big oil shocks when there were severe disequilibria and it was possible to make money but lose energy. I don't think you can... Uh, do that now. Right. But I think, Emery, I think the the broader point on this is that when you think about your conversation around grid flexibility and grid integration, um, even though fossil fuels are one of the most expensive ways to do that work, we still built 400,000 megawatts of combined cycle and peaker plants in the 80s and 90s 
um, in the United States, right? I mean, and and when you look at countries like um, India or continents like Africa, um, they're choosing to figure out which direction to go in now. I think the analysis you would argue, and I would of course concur, is that these modern technologies that we have now mainstreamed are what they should choose. Um, but you know, you've got prominent voices like Bill Gates and others who are saying, no, you should go back into the Stone Ages and build stuff that's you know, 40, 50 years old. And you're also seeing um, a lot of the economic um, powers that be, whether it's Siemens or ABB or others, sort of are you know, sort of not really completely on our side. They're pushing some of their stuff. So I'm trying to figure out, after all is said and done, you got this academic analysis, but how do we actually win? <laughs> well, <clears throat> people tend to vote with their wallets in energy. Uh, and, uh, of course, large firms that have both legacy and modern offerings try to sell both, but uh, never ask a pusher if you need a fix. Uh, you know, look, really make your own purchasing decisions, and that's exactly what is happening worldwide. Uh, about 58% of the capacity last year we added in the world was renewable. Renewables uh, other than big hydro in each of the past three years got over a quarter trillion dollars investment and added over 80 gigawatts, 880. Uh, China in 2012, interestingly, uh, not only added huge renewables, but ran their coal plants a good deal less than had been expected because renewables were cheaper to run. So they added that year more terawatt hours, more electric generation from non-hydro renewables than from all uh, fossil and nuclear sources combined. And last year, 68% of China's added capacity was renewable the majority of which was solar and wind. Brazil has recently had to bar wind power from one of its unsubsidized auctions because it was beating everybody. You know, a Kenyan household is more likely to get its first electricity from an entrepreneurial woman selling photovoltaics in the market uh, than from the grid, which uh, will take a very long time to reach uh, rural areas and then give them electricity they can't afford. So with all of these people who projecting high percentages of renewables, whether it was Al Gore in 2008 that was, you know, making his John F. Kennedy speech to get us to be 100 percent renewables by 2020 or Eric Schmidt at Google by 2030 or some of these other, you know, proclamations as well. I don't know. What, what's your sense? When do we get to these high penetrations of renewables in, let's call it, the United States? And Jigger, let me just throw something else in there, too, to add to that question, which is I feel like public policy is going to make the biggest difference. So if we had had a national renewable portfolio standard, perhaps we would have taken a bigger step in that direction. Well, in reinventing fire, we showed it would be $5 trillion cheaper in that present value uh, to go to three-quarters renewable and tripled efficiency by 2050 than to follow official projections to produce the same economic output. And that's counting carbon and all other external or hidden costs at zero, which is certainly a, a conservatively low estimate. Uh, I would have to say, looking back, that our analysis was indeed conservative, and the U.S. in those three years has tracked very nicely to target. Uh, it, it is on the trajectory I described, except it's a bit ahead in renewables. So the, the result would be by 2050, the U.S. would use no oil, no coal, no nuclear, a third less natural gas, and this requires no new inventions. R&D is good and we'll get new inventions, but even without them, we can do everything I've described, and it requires no act of Congress. It can be led by business for profit. That's really what's happening in this country. Uh, federal energy policy has done some good things, uh, say at FERC, a little bit by other kinds of policy, but it's largely stymied by Congress. Uh, but the but private enterprise, the most dynamic force in our society, co-evolving with civil society, sped by military innovation, is filling the policy gap. And, of course, most of our policy in energy has never been made at a federal level. It's made at a state and local level. That's where most of the action and innovation are. The private sector, 
What do they think about the reinventing fire plan or similar plans? You've had it out for a few years now. Do they believe you? Do they, when you sit down and you talk to them about what it would mean in terms of materials development or renewables procurement or changing their supply chains, whatever it might be, do they actually believe you that it's possible? Well, they is a pretty <laughs> inclusive term. I, I mean, the forwards to it, to the book, were written by the president of Shell Oil and the then chairman of the biggest nuclear and third biggest coal-fired utility in the country. Uh, and uh, the work has been very well received. Nobody's told us what's wrong with it. It did have extensive help from industry in both content and peer review. Uh, we think it was rigorous, and it stood up very well. Obviously, some people have ideological objections to the outcome, but the smarter companies have been aligning their strategy and their investment very much in line with what we described, and they're doing well at it. Uh, those who have not are not doing so well, and uh, I think the market is starting to <laughs> draw appropriate conclusions. It, it's interesting when, when I went to a very large hydrocarbon company, you might expect to be unsympathetic to our findings, you, you often find in such places the engineers have already reached the same conclusions. It's the economists who don't get it. And after a while, you just leave them arguing with each other. <laughs> well, Emery Lovins is the co-founder and chief scientist at the Rocky Mountain Institute. He joined us from Snowmass, Colorado. Great discussion. Really appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for the insight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Emery. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, E-Gage Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device, E-Gage provides real-time access to second-by-second -second data presented on a user-friendly interface. E-Gage is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. Applications for the E-Gage meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net-zero buildings. Uh, and those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the E-Gage meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGage. To learn more, go to www.egage.net. In 2011, FERC established Order 1000, a landmark ruling that requires transmission developers to take regional policies into account, including the integration of renewables. It was lauded by many who see it as necessary for building out a cleaner grid and encouraging competition. But it was fought by 45 utilities and state regulators who called it arbitrary and capricious. But last week, a D.C. district court ruled in favor of FERC, saying the rule was based on sound analysis of market needs. Catherine, we'll look to you to give us the background on this legal fight over Order 1000 and uh, tell us why the ruling's a big deal. Great. Thanks so much. So first, let me tell you something that Michael Skelly, who's the president of Clean Line Energy Partners, told me um, when I contacted him about the Order 1000 win. Um, they developed transmission to serve renewables. And he basically says, you know, FERC Order 1000 is a boon to renewable energy development. And it'll A more efficient grid helps markets operate more efficiently. The planning umbrella is extremely helpful as incumbents and independents develop new interregional inter projects to connect load and this competition will do what it does everywhere else, which is improve efficiency, attract new entrants, and drive innovation. And that's exactly what he said is exactly what FERC meant to do. Yeah, and, and so I can just, I just jump yes. in? Sorry. Yeah. So this is good for the independent transmission developers because it takes away the right of first refusal for the public utilities. And that's why many of these utilities were opposed to it because it increases competition, right? Right. That's correct. So um, first, just a tiny bit of a background. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole Federal Power Act and everything, but just so that people will understand that what FERC does takes a long time and is and is done in a pretty thoughtful way, which is, you know, they're supposed to come up with a market structure that's transparent, non-discriminatory, just, reasonable. There's no undue prejudice or disadvantage to either localities or different classes of service. So they have their marching orders on developing energy markets. And what they have to look at is, 
is the market structure sufficient to deal with how the market is changing? So as new technologies come on, whether it's renewables or distributed energy or, you know, as load pockets are changing, are the market rules sufficient? So they went through this huge exercise, which they do with every rule, which is they do technical conferences and workshops. They do a notice of inquiry. All of these are collect information from a wide variety of constituents. So they look at what everybody's saying. They do a proposed rule for Order 1000. It took a year from the time the proposed rule was issued till the Order 1000 was issued in August 2011. So it's a very, very thoughtful process. I've been involved in several of these development of orders. They take a long time. They build the records so that when an order is issued, just remember they have developed a very strong record in support of that order. They also use certainly legislation. So the Federal Power Act has been amended over the years during in different energy policy, you know, during EPAC, EISA, all these cycles to to get FERC to be able to look more holistically at the market. So the order did, as Stephen said, and and as Amory alluded to, as FERC is one of those entities that provides public policy for us, that's one of the strongest and most functional. So, you know, that each transmission provider has to be involved in a planning process that looks at alternatives tra- transmission, new resources, and as Stephen, as you said, public policies. So that could be a renewable portfolio standard in a state or an efficient energy efficiency standard, or even 111D, the new gran- greenhouse gas rule. This will allow regions to be able to plan much more holistically and have interregional coordination. So the neighboring regions can work together to share data um, in a really coordinated fashion. And the court basically said unanimously, no, you guys, FERC does have the ability to do this. This is absolutely right for them to do it. Um, They didn't overreach their authority at all because they're only telling you to coordinate. They're not telling you how to operate. This is not arbitrary and capricious. So why were the public utility transmission companies so opposed to the process if it does open up all these factors and make for a more sound planning process? Is it just this competition issue? Well, it provides for the ability to do something other than building, you know, building power plants and building lines to connect to them. So it it, it does open up uh, competition, but it also opens up the distributed side. It allows renewables to compete in a better way. It lowers the cost to consumer. Um, it doesn't keep them in control of what's going on, really. It allows um, a much more holistic approach. And I think that it really does allow for uh, a better outcome for consumers, a better outcome for the environment, and and certainly a better outcome for everybody who's trying to do business on the grid. So they're just sticking their claws in the cliff trying to hang on. Well, the, yeah. I, I do think the politics here matter. I mean, like folks like Virginia and North Carolina fought tooth and nail around their integration within uh, the PJM, not because they were necessarily against it, but more just because they, you know, it's like a state's rights issue for them, right? And they just didn't want to be forced by, you know, someone to join a balancing grid. And I think the same thing's true here. I mean, I think, you know, when FERC came out with their standard market design, it was a bunch of uh, Democrats in in the Northwest and um, the Republicans in the Southeast that teamed up together to kill it because, you know, Southern Company and Florida Power and Light sort of run like their own little empires. And so does Bonneville Power and some of the folks in the Northwest. And so, you know, I think that the fact of the matter is the U.S. needs to move from being 50 separate countries into, you know, sort of one big infrastructure grid in the same way that the federal highway system allows for somebody to drive across the country and use the same toll passes and all the other stuff. You know, we're in we're stuck in a situation where it's really hard for neighboring states to actually partner with each other to solve these problems. Well, yeah, and it doesn't actually take anything away from what the states can do. The states still have the ability to do a lot of policy and and make those decisions on their own. The issue is that our grid and all of the market structure around it was designed for one specific type of grid. And as that grid changes and technologies change and new resources come on, our market rules have to change. And so it's really taking us into the, the 21st century to be able to change some of these market rules. And I think it bodes really well, since this court decision was unanimous, it was a different set of judges that make, made this decision in the U.S. Circuit Court than the Circuit Court decision that um, vacated 
Order 745 on demand response. What this tells me is that there are judges who have a really sophisticated understanding of energy markets and that if you do an en banc hearing, which is what uh, FERC has asked for on Order 745, we may have a very different outcome on that order as well because, again, that was an attempt to, to tweak the market so that there, you, know, you actually accommodate for services that new entrants can provide that haven't been able to be provided before. Yeah, and this is what uh, the judges said. They said this argument misunderstands the nature of the mandate, that is the, the argument from the opponents. It does not promote any particular public policy or even the public welfare generally. The mandate simply recognizes the state and federal policies might affect the transmission market and directs transmission providers to consider that impact in their planning decisions. So they seemed to interpret the rule the way that FERC interpreted it for sure. Well, and the, what's interesting is I um, I talked to several of my wind energy friends as well, and you know there's there's something on the order of three hundred thousand megawatts of wind that has sort of been mapped out across the country, particularly in that two thousand eight DOE study around how wind integration might work. Um, that's really you know not possible without um, a modern transmission system. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, and so I think the wind guys in particular are feeling really bullish about this. Um, and it's, it's, it's just one of those extraordinary things to me about how, um, you know, a lot of analysts just are so such linear thinkers that they think, oh, you know, the PTC is expired and so therefore wind is dead. And in fact, you know, wind needed some transmission help and needed a few other things to really get unlocked again. And I think, you know, now with this order, you could see wind get back up to 10, 13,000, you know, megawatts a year. Yeah, according to that... National Renewable Energy Laboratory report on integrating 80% renewable electricity. We need up to around 190 million miles of new transmission. And so uh, previously, transmission planning didn't really take renewables integration into account. Now it does. Matches up well with what NREL said needs to happen. So, Catherine, are there any more legal challenges to this coming? I think the court was pretty firm. They really made a good case point by point on how every single one of the arguments that were made was just not right. And that you know, the key here is that FERC has legis- you know, there's legislation backing it up and they have the legal standing to do that. And the court made that pretty clear. So I don't see where it's going to go past this, but, you know, certainly they're right to take it further if they want to. Well, but I do think this is going to shift investment very, very quickly. I think there's a lot of wind farms that were held up that people just said, well, we're not going to put the rest of the development money in because we're just not sure if this transmission line will ever get built. And and I think people are feeling more confident in taking these sort of three-year bets on investing capital. And so I think the wind market's going to get a big boost out of this. Good news for wind developers, yeah. independent transmission developers, and of course, FERC, which lost that demand response fight. So I'm sure people are about well, to that's happy. still yeah, that's still going on. But yes, it was a very good boost for them. It made them I think feel pretty good about the path they were on. All right, let's go to our third topic. Do you know what application is expected to carry 10 to 15% of the non residential solar market in the US? If you're out in California, your car might be parked under one right now. Yep, it's solar carports. The market is growing strongly enough that GTM Research just put out a report on it. Despite higher development costs due to permitting and materials, we've now seen four years in a row with solar carport installations surpassing 100 megawatts. This year, GTM Research projects installations to hit 180 megawatts and peak at nearly 320 megawatts in 2016. Jigger, I know you have a lot of interest in this sector. Uh, you wanted to bring it up in today's show, and conveniently, we've got this new report out on it. Why do you think uh, solar carports are so attractive? Well, depending on who you talk to, there's between 105 million um, to 500 million parking spots in the United States, right? And the difference between the numbers are um, where they're located. So the 105 million, I think, are ones that are in the parking lots that you think about, office parks, Walmart, et cetera, where the other parking spots are maybe um, designated on the side of the road, et cetera. But that's a lot of space. That's a lot of space. And when you think about the structural engineering stuff that we have to do for rooftops, et cetera, et cetera, it might just be easier to drop some of these in. It's a little bit more expensive, maybe about 40 cents a watt for the steel infrastructure, et cetera. But you know, when you think about cars um, in general, a lot of people like parking under parking shade canopies. It's 
It's better for your car. It doesn't gas as much in terms of the plastics, et cetera, in your car. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of folks who who see this as a huge growth opportunity. And I, I frankly think the, the big challenge has been that the developer community really just hasn't focused on this segment until the last year or so. And so I, I, I just see this taking off like a rocket ship. Yeah, Jigger, it sounded like uh, it, parking is the single biggest land use in any city. We really did pave paradise and put up a parking lot. And um, what I'm curious about on your side is all these different kind of sectors that are involved, whether it's the structural design people, the developers, the fully integrated companies, um, these mounting structure companies. How do you think this is all going to shake out? There are a lot of people involved in this. Well, you'd be surprised. Um, there are a lot of engineering firms that are actually focused on parking shade canopies and the parking shade canopies that they've already designed are actually quite robust and and strong enough to be able to hold the weight of solar so it's it's really just outsourcing the work to a different group so instead of hiring quanta or mortensen construction you hire xyz company instead to build it and they'll do all the work uh, including procuring the steel um, and so it's been it's pretty impressive. And there's parking shade canopies that have built been built all the way from Massachusetts, where it snows a lot, to Arizona, where people are dying for these parking shade canopies because our cars get so hot in 115 degree temperatures. Yeah. So you love the ancillary services here, Jigger. You mentioned, I think, in the comment board at GTM that there's a study showing people would pay, say, like 20 bucks a month to park under shade or under a solar carport. Where did you see that number? Well, the city of Tucson, I think, was was the one that was looking at it the most, but there's a few other folks as well. What they did was they basically took their parking lot and said, well, let's cover part of it with parking shade canopies. And then, you know, the parking lots are free for government employees or other employees. And they said, well, if you want to park in the parking shade canopy, it's 20 bucks a month. And um, it was sold out. I mean, just people... Hmm. People were like – there was a waiting list of people who wanted to park under the parking shade canopies. And um, it's just one of those things. And when you do the math, 20 bucks a month is something on the order of like um, you know, $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour that you're adding to the, um, to the value of um, the solar. Yeah. So that's a lot of money. I mean when you're only doing a $0.10 cent PPA, you're doubling the value just by adding you know, a modest $20 a month parking fee. Yeah, and interestingly – these projects are getting done without any of those services. Uh, I mean, California has put some good incentives behind carports for government facilities, for schools, and for government buildings. And so people are able to make the economics work just through PPAs. Um, and then in New Jersey, uh, even though the SREC market has seen troubles, the market looks pretty good there. New York is up and coming. Arizona, actually. And then there is this whole driving aspect that I find fascinating as well. So there is the potential for people to pay for parking under uh, a carport, and then you could improve the economics of a system in that way. And then you sent us over this study from UC Berkeley that identified the 100 million to 500 million parking spots. And there are roughly three parking free parking spots in the U.S. for every car on the road. And this, of course, increases the use of cars, which the researcher said increases the CO2 emitted by a car by around 10%, and I think sulfur dioxide by a quarter. And there's this really interesting community planning debate over whether to limit parking spaces or just increase paid parking. Um, but solar par carports could, I suppose, theoretically offset those emissions while down the road encourage the use of EVs. Uh, so there's a lot to this that goes beyond just the simple economics of project development and gets deeper into the urban planning debate over what to do with parking spaces. Yeah, they need to use them for those trucks that are selling food because those food trucks just spew fumes. Well, that's the other thing is that like once you put these parking shade canopies all over the place, you actually have the ability to direct DC power things like those food trucks and other things because i agree a lot of those food trucks are running by on diesel and that's really expensive or kerosene mm -hmm. um but but i think to your broader point Stephen, i think you're right i mean i think there's a huge policy component to this which is you know you've got a lot of counties and a lot of cities who have dead weight i mean nobody pays property taxes for these parking lots i mean they're literally just sitting there with a value of next to nothing um and so these cities could get a huge amount of increased revenue 
if they, you know, if they took this policy on, stick this stuff in there, and then actually just charge people a tax as well. So they paid twenty bucks a month to park under the parking shade canopy, and then paid another ten dollars in taxes um, to the city for for that for that right as well. I think cities have a lot of land that they need to reclaim, and you see this in New York City, for instance, where um, they took a lot of the area around Times Square as well as um, a few other places and actually just took the roads and said no more cars can park on it. And it's amazing what entrepreneurs have figured out what, you know, how to redevelop this land. All right. Uh, I think that about wraps up our show and we'll tell you something you don't know now. Jigger, what's your story? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of folks who have recently been talking about um, Vivint's, um, you know, IPO and then Solar City um, uh, the last conference call where they said that they their cost structure has gone down to two dollars and twenty nine cents a watt for residential installations, which is just extraordinary to me. And you know, it got me thinking about Wall Street. And so I talked to a couple of my friends, and it was amazing to me how much money is being shifted into the public market space for solar. Um, these were just four or five friends of mine that I had that are just doing. Um, you know, just regular sort of hedge fund type work and, you know, nothing particularly spectacular. But they were saying that they really did see, um, you know, the, the wealth creating opportunities here with all the IPOs and the and other things. And, and I, I just thought that it was it was a really interesting thing that I, I just hadn't checked on um, how many folks in the finance sector are now actually participating in our space. Yeah, but. When do these companies need to be profitable? Are investors willing to see these companies grow exponentially without being profitable for years to come? Yeah. Case in point is Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm. That is a very good point. Catherine, tell us something we do not know. Well, I just wanted to give a little bit of a moment to uh, Senator Jim Jeffords of Vermont, who passed away a few days ago. Um, I thought very highly of him. He was a Republican, a Northeastern Republican from Vermont. He very much stuck to um, his values. He voted the way he wanted to vote. Um, He is the reason that we have um, handicap ramps from sidewalks onto uh, streets so that as you are rolling your bike or your stroller or your wheelchair, you can thank uh, Senator Jeffords for that. Um, He funded the um, individual Jewels with Disability Education Act that provided free and appropriate public education for people with disabilities. He also was completely bullish on renewable energy and energy efficiency. And as a result of these positions and not voting with the Republicans, he started to get punished by his own party, taken off of key slots on committees. He was in the Senate um, when it was 50-50 in 2001, and Dick Cheney was the was the tying vote. So in essence, the Republicans controlled the Senate. And Jim Jeffords said, I'm no longer going to be a Republican. He was getting punished for his votes. And he said, I want to be able to vote the way I want to vote. And I'm going to be an independent. And and um, and I'm going to caucus with the Democrats. And it flipped the Senate. And boy, the Republicans were really mad then. Um, <laughs> but he always he, he voted his conscience. Um, Bernie Sanders is also from Vermont, a senator now, the a current sitting senator. And he does the same thing. He's an independent, caucuses with the Dems. Um, senator Jeffords' staff was always brilliant. Um, I really missed him when he left the Senate. And um, I was really Really quite sad when he passed away this week. Yeah, I was saddened by the news too. And I grew up in southern New Hampshire, right near the border of Vermont. And a lot of people in New Hampshire and in Vermont had a lot of respect for him. So he leaves behind a, an amazing legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, my first job out of college was up at Atlantic Orient Corporation in uh, in um, in uh, Vermont. And um, and so Jim Jeffords would actually come by because he was good friends with Bob Sherwin. The the uh, the owner of that company and uh, he he took really a huge interest in wind energy because uh, Entertech was also based there which is you know one of the the leading manufacturers of wind turbines back in the seventies um, so it he he does leave behind a great legacy. All right, I want to talk about politics too. Uh, our listeners probably all know Tom Steyer by now, the billionaire climate activist who's pouring millions into uh, races this election to get environmental issues and climate change on people's minds. Steyer has certainly captured a lot of people's imaginations, but he hasn't really captured money yet. His Climate Action Committee, which had a target of raising $50 million to to match his pledged $50 million 
not by this point, I should say, um, has only raised $1.7 million from outside groups, according to some disclosure filings. And he says that big environmental and other Democratic groups are spending alongside him rather than through his PAC. And according to conversations Politico had with some top strategists in a piece last month and an update piece this month, many of them are afraid of associating with Steyer out of fear of getting attacked. And the polling continually indicates that voters will respond positively to candidates talking about climate change. But one has to wonder if the Democrats, which really have been the only ones who've said they're willing to talk about climate, are actually way more scared of the issue than they claim. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot of pansyism going on over here, right? I mean, you just look at, like, League of Conservation voters broadly. Um, they, They, after the fact give people money for voting their way. But a lot of the people that they're giving money to are not actually championing our issues. They just happen to vote for the final bill in the approach that we wanted to take. I mean, I think Steyer is really trying to get people to say, look, this is an issue that Americans are passionate about, the polling shows it, etc. Just own it, and we will actually benefit from it. And instead, I think a lot of folks are just permanently hedging. Well, I know he's been publicly... Mildly disappointed in the results so far, so we'll see what the coming months bring and if he can raise some more money. $1.7 million is not even close to what they expected to raise at this point. Time to wrap up the show. We are done for the week. Thanks for listening. You can always go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast to read the stories we chatted about, to comment on the show, debate Jigger, and to find subscription options. Don't forget to sign up for our live show in New York City on September 22nd or our soft group conference on September 10th and 11th. Links to those events will be on the podcast page as well. Finally, we would love it if you could write a review for this show on Stitcher Radio or iTunes if you listen through those services. That helps us find a lot more listeners. Last but not least, thank you very much to eGage Systems for sponsoring this podcast. Catherine, enjoy the remainder of your vacation. Have a safe trip back to the city. And... Uh, Don't spend any more time working than you already have with this podcast. Great. Got it. (laughs) Jigger, enjoy whatever it is you're planning to do this weekend. Anything fun? Yeah, I'm uh, coming down to D.C. I'm uh, celebrating my D.C. birthday party, so that'll be fun. I know. I'm so bummed that I'm going to miss it. I have a strongman competition that I'm doing uh, all day, and I'm going to be out of town. Yeah, I'm going to be on the New Jersey Turnpike, so send out a little prayer my way. (laughs) <laughs> I'll save you a piece of cake. So Jigger's <laughs> turning 40, and I think your birthday is right at the end of the month, right? Yeah, August 30th. All right. Well, we'll be sure to have a special birthday episode, and I'm sorry I'm going to miss the party. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. Next week.